Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're so glad you're joining us this week. We are. We love that you keep coming back week after week. We think you guys are awesome. And if you're new here, thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm. Christy's got a case for us from overseas, and I've got the translation locked and loaded. <laughs> I'm going to need that. So thank you. I have been waiting to bring you today's case. I am going to tell you this one, though, a little bit differently. I'm going to first tell you about two separate people. And then I will tell you about how their lives collided. It's like a serendipity moment? Yes, but not in a good way. As a disclaimer, this case makes me emotional, even after spending so much time on it. Usually, Melissa and I are pretty good at editing out the times that a case has moved us to tears. And I will do my best to hold it together, but no guarantees. Yeah, I know sometimes it seems like we laugh a lot during our episodes, but most of the time that's just to relieve emotional tension. It's true. Sometimes that's the only thing you can do is laugh or cry. And we do actually sometimes cry while we're recording, but editing is a beautiful thing. And we try to take that out as much as we can for you. But like I said, no promises this time. All I'm going to say is get comfy and buckle in for this one. And one more little disclaimer, this case takes place in Germany. So again, please don't judge too harshly if or when I mispronounce a word. This is always my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa loves seeing me try to stumble over words. When we both do it. (laughs) We do, but never intentionally. Yes, we always like to look like fools (laughs) or sound like fools. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why we appreciate you still coming back with all our little quirks. We do appreciate it. So Christy, tell me about this case. Okay. The first person I'm going to tell you about is a man named Klaus Grabowski. He was born in 1946. Admittedly, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about his childhood, but as an adult, he resided in Lübeck, Germany. I'm unsure if he was born in Germany. In 2009, Grabowski was the 20th most popular surname in Poland, so he may have been born there, or at least his family may have originated there. Even the death record I found for him did not have a birthplace or exact date listed for him. What we do know is that by the time Klaus was in his 20s, He was already the worst type of dirtbag. Klaus had what was described as an addiction to abnormal sexual instincts. In more plain words, he was a pedophile. Oh. Yeah, we're going there today. These ones are always so disturbing. They really are. In 1975, Klaus was charged with two counts of sexual abuse towards two young girls. He was found guilty and was sentenced to serve time in a psychological treatment facility. While there... Klaus was treated by Dr. Hartmanis. Later, in a future court, it was said, quote, On the basis of the convincing opinion of Dr. Hartmanis, the board is undoubtedly certain that the abnormal sexual instinct of the accused is addictive. The accused was aware of the unauthorized activity, but he was considerably limited in his ability to prevent it because of his addiction to the offense. This is our dirtbag of the case. Oh, he is our dirtbag. Okay. Yes, Klaus is our dirtbag. But knowing this just helps us realize how dangerous of a person he was. 
He just had no control. Right. The doctors are saying this is an addiction for him. He knows it's wrong, but he's going to keep doing it. So did they keep him locked up then? Well, I will tell you. But I did want to make a quick note that the two girls that he was charged of sexually molesting were not his first victims. He was known to attack girls as young as age six from the early 1970s. One account I found said that he had been charged with attempted murder of one young girl, but had been let out on probation. But I did not find documents to confirm this, although I would not put it past him. It was actually challenging covering a case where a lot of the information about this case is not published in English, but I've done my best. That is always a challenge when you're using like Google Translator to translate court documents doesn't always come across the easiest to read. True. And it was hard to even find those documents because they're in Germany. They weren't so readily accessible in Canada for us. Good job digging deep then, Christy. I tried my best. (laughs) Because his sexual urges were considered an addiction that he had little control over, Klaus was given two options to choose from. One, he could remain at the facility for an indeterminate amount of time. Or two, he could undergo chemical castration and be released. That was totally going to be my guess. I could tell by the look on your face. You just had this sly little smile. You're like, I know what she's going to say. Yes. Mm -hmm. Chemical castration may seem self-explanatory, but I am going to explain it a little bit anyway. There are two types of castration, surgical and chemical. Because we are talking about a man for this case, I'll explain regarding the male anatomy But a woman can also undergo chemical castration, albeit it is way less common. In a surgical castration, a man's gonads are removed from his body. During a chemical castration, a man is given anaphrodisiac drugs to reduce libido and sexual activity. Typically, he is given some form of non-steroidal estrogen to help lower his testosterone. An antipsychotic drug is sometimes also added to this treatment. From what I understood, it is injected into the patient and released over time. And as long as they show up for their injections, then things continue to suppress those urges. When I researched this one, it seemed like it was one injection that released over a long period of time. The main difference between the two types of castration is that chemical castration can be reversed if desired. I'm not sure if it is still a common practice in Germany, but in 2016, the New York Times published an article stating that a number of countries still offer chemical castration in return for a reduced sentence. And I found varying information. It seems some countries have even turned to surgical castration as part of their treatment for sex offenders. And did you read any information about how effective it is? It seemed like it was pretty effective. But this case really inspired some discussion by German officials as to how effective this is. And one report I found said that Germany had switched to the surgical castration. Don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure I couldn't confirm it. Right. And so the idea behind the chemical or the surgical castration is that you're going to remove those urges. I was just curious if it actually has the opposite effect because now you have completely frustrated urges. No, it seemed to lower those chances of them reoffending. Okay, so it actually does take the urges away then mm-hmm. because of the hormones. Yes. From what I read, and I mean, I didn't spend hours and hours on it, but from what I did read, it did seem like it was effective in most cases. Now you've inspired me to do another deep dig. <laughs> now I have to go read about this. <laughs> you can go on your own little journey about castration. <laughs> I had spent the amount of time that I was prepared and willing to spend and the thought, okay, I got to move on. But when presented with these options, Klaus chose the chemical castration, which he received in 1976 and was then released back into the community. 
Two years after being released in 1978, Klaus went to urologist Dr. Volker vom End to ask him to reverse his chemical castration. Klaus was engaged at the time and working as a butcher. Klaus told the doctor that he wanted to start a family. When the doctor questioned him regarding why he had been chemically castrated in the first place, Klaus lied and said it was because he had been charged with indecent exposure. He admitted to being an exhibitionist, but forgot to mention that he was a sex offender who targeted children. And so did the doctor meet his supposed fiancé and confirm his story? He was actually engaged. Oh, he was? He was engaged and did want to start a family. But if you were this urologist, would you take a man's word for it? Or would you check with the police first? Yeah, you'd think that you would check, but I just don't know what avenues you would have to check with. Is there in Germany a public sexual offender list? I'm not sure, especially this is in the 70s. But he could have even went into the police and asked them, hey, do you know about this guy? He's wanting to reverse his chemical castration because that's generally just given to sex offenders. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this doctor took Klaus's word for it and administered the treatment to reverse his castration. He said he felt sorry for Klaus since he was so young. This treatment involved an injection as well as pills that Klaus would continue to take at home. Before long, Klaus's testosterone levels were back up to the levels that they were pre-castration. Oh no, so all of those urges are going to come flooding back then. Exactly. I wonder how much that would change his actual personality. So he's met this woman, he's convinced her to marry him, and how much of his personality is going to change now that he's no longer under those hormonal influences? Ooh, that's a good point. Because I would imagine things like, as a man, your testosterone levels will play a factor into some of your character traits. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And like your personality and how you react to situations. And I think it'd be a game changer. I think you're right. And I just want to point out that not only did the urologist not do his homework about his patient, especially knowing that chemical castration was generally given to sex offenders for reduced sentences, but the court did nothing in terms of follow-up. Klaus was released without ongoing psychiatric treatment, and there was no monitoring to ensure he hadn't reversed his castration. These balls that were dropped, no pun intended, (laughs) would prove to be detrimental. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. We are now going to take a break from Klaus, and we're going to talk about our second person, a woman named Marianne Bachmeier. I was able to find an Australian database of archived newspapers and magazines, which is where I found a lot of the information that I will share about her formative years. The bonus is that these publications were in English. Yay! (laughs) So much easier. It's true. When I found these, it was actually photos of the original documents, the publications, and Mm. that was great. Marianne was born in Sarsted, West Germany, on the 3rd of June, 1950. Sarsted was a very small town in the 50s, but according to the last census that I could find, it now has around 20,000 people who live there. Sarsted is situated south of Hanover and north of Hildesheim, for any of our listeners who are familiar with German geography. And I might have said those wrong. Marianne's family had fled to Germany from East Prussia after the Second World War. Marianne's father, Joseph, was an officer in the Waffen-SS, which was the combat branch of the Nazis' party, Schutzstaffel organization, and lived true to the stereotype of an overly authoritative figure. Joseph was described as an enthusiastic Nazi who couldn't come to terms with Hitler being dead. He was a big supporter. And that's almost all you need to know about Joseph. Joseph was strict, conservatively religious, and a mean drunk. 
that is quite the combination. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever thought about what Hitler's followers, how much difficulty they would have had to adjust their beliefs after all that was over. Oh, yeah. Can't even go there, even just to understand that way of thinking, let alone being upset after Hitler was gone. But he was all for it. He was a strong supporter. You can see how that would be very difficult to adjust to and then would lead into anger over it. Mm -hmm. You said he's a mean drunk. Does he beat his daughter? Yeah, he's not a nice dad. He's not a good dad or husband or person, really, for that (laughs) matter. Let's just say it. It was said that Marianne's father spent most of his free time at the local bar and would come home to terrorize his wife and child. This continued until Marianne's mother, Hannah, mustered enough courage to take her child and leave her drunken husband behind, which was pretty remarkable for that time. We're talking the 50s in West Germany. Mm -hmm. Hannah eventually remarried to a man named Paul Wies, but I'm not sure if this man was much better. He was reportedly a professional wrestler and truck driver. I don't believe he had a drinking problem, but he did demand total power over the family. Reportedly, he was very controlling over Marianne and would use physical punishment when she disobeyed. So I believe she got beat more by her stepfather than her biological father. It does not sound like a happy childhood. Mm-mm. And this caused Marianne to rebel. She refused to call him Papa, as he requested, and instead called him Uncle Paul. which probably receives more beats. (laughs) Yes, she was a little feisty. She was rebellious in nature that way. But can you really blame her? No. By age 16 in 1966, Marianne's mother sided with her husband and kicked Marianne to the curb, making her move out of the house that they had shared. I am always shocked when a mother does this. I know. I know that there's reasons behind their own coping styles what they're going through, but it always shocks me when I hear that. Yeah, it surprised me too. It feels like a betrayal to the child. Mm-hmm. Especially because she had the courage to leave her husband knowing that it wasn't safe for her and her child and then gets into a second relationship and he literally beats her daughter and is now wanting to kick her out. But she's already been divorced once and so she's probably in a more vulnerable position mm-hmm. now. And Marianne's 16. She's probably thinking you're leaving soon anyway. I don't want to be left all alone. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's always some sort of reasoning that they have behind those decisions. It's just difficult for me to understand them. Right. We try not to judge, but just trying to understand why, like you said. And I believe that Paul had two daughters of his own from a previous marriage, and they were allowed to stay in the home. I can only imagine that this would be a tough rejection for Marianne to be deserted by all her parental figures even before adulthood. Understandably, during this time, she turned to male attention to help fill that void, a decision that resulted in her falling pregnant at the tender age of 16. And one newspaper that I read said that her becoming pregnant was the reason she was kicked out of the house. So I'm not sure which came first, because I read differing reports for that. But it happened around the same time. Yeah, rather she got kicked out than got pregnant, or she got kicked out because she was pregnant. Neither are good situations to Mm -mm. be in. No. On March 11th, 1967, Marianne gave birth to a baby girl. Sadly, the boy who helped create this baby dipped out and left Marianne on her own. Marianne knew she could not provide for a child at her age, especially without family support, so she courageously placed her baby for adoption. Things continued to be tough for Marianne, and at the age of 18, she once again became pregnant by her high school boyfriend. So she was still going to school? Yeah, she must have been because it said it was her high school boyfriend. Hmm, That's surprising. Mm -hmm. Good for her. Yeah. 
A short time prior to giving birth, Marianne was raped at gunpoint. What? While she was pregnant? Yeah. And it seemed like just like maybe weeks before giving birth. Like she was really pregnant. That is disgusting. Yeah. That takes a special kind of dirtbag to do that to an expecting mother. Wow. The man who raped her told her that he would kill her if she went to the police. Marianne dismissed his threats and testified against him at his trial. This rapist tried to victim blame Marianne, an unwed expecting mother, by calling her a tart. Thankfully, with the help of Marianne, this man was convicted of his crime. So she is feisty. Good for her. For standing up for herself? That's quite incredible. It really is. And it really rubbed her the wrong way because he was just assuming because she was a teenager who was pregnant and not married. Oh, she's easy. I can rape her if I want to. Yeah. Which is just sickening. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine she didn't have family support either. Like the bravery that that took for her to do that. And what a dirtbag to pick on somebody so vulnerable. Yeah. And to plan on it. Oh, you're not going to go to the police because you're vulnerable. Yeah. And to threaten her if she does. Yeah. Although she put on a brave face, it is reported that after this ordeal, Marianne attempted suicide. Luckily, she was able to be revived without harm to her unborn child. Marianne gave birth to a second daughter. Because she was still struggling with the trauma from her assault and the ending of her relationship with her boyfriend, Marianne decided again to place this baby for adoption. One report said it was the father's parents who adopted the child. During these years outside of her house, Marianne had been living in different reform homes and places for unwed mothers. After the baby was born, Uncle Paul passed away and Marianne was allowed to move back home for a time. At this time in her life, Marianne became, quote, an addict of discotheques. What? (laughs) She liked to party. (laughs) Okay. Means like the club. Right. So we've got two addictive personalities. Are they going to collide? They're going to collide somehow. We're going to get there. I got to know, Christy. I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I promise. Marianne was all about having fun as the 70s approached. One night while at an all-night party, Marianne met a handsome hippie named Christian Berthold. The two hit it off immediately, and it didn't take long for them to engage in a romantic relationship. From your raised eyebrows, I'm guessing that night? It was that night. (laughs) (laughs) Things got physical that night, that's what we'll say. Christian was the manager and owner of the bar Tipaza. Marianne began also working at the bar. And I looked it up, and there is currently a restaurant named Tipaza in Lubeck, but I am unsure if it is the same establishment. If it is, it does not seem to be the same party hotspot that it used to be in the 70s. I think it's just a restaurant now. Marianne was conventionally very attractive and was able to be quite successful at working at a bar. Now at the age of 22, in 1972, Marianne became pregnant for the third time. Christian was the father, but it sounded like their relationship was a little volatile. On again, off again, and neither one of them being 100% faithful 100% of the time. I won't get into all the drama, but it was unconventional to say the least. And sadly, Marianne was reportedly raped a second time by an ex-boyfriend during one of her escapades. Man, it seems like she's had such a rough life. And it can't be all just bad luck. No, I think part of it too is because she was rejected right from a young age by her family members, especially the male figures in her life, that she sought out male attention to try and fill that void. Which is so sad because when she's seeking it out, she's not finding the right male attention. No. 
On November 14, 1972, Marianne gave birth to a beautiful little girl and named her Anna. This time, Marianne felt like she could take care of her daughter and wanted to give it a go, with or without Christian's help, and as it would turn out, it was mostly without his help. When they would temporarily get back together, they would do things as a family, like visit the stables, but it always seemed to be short-lived, and Marianne would once again be on her own to raise Anna. Friends said that Marianne had a hard time dealing with placing her first two children for adoption and really wanted to keep Anna. That being said, Marianne did not want to get pregnant a fourth time and underwent tubal ligation to become sterilized after Anna was born. She would physically not be able to conceive any more children. Because Marianne was on her own, and because she wasn't willing to give up her job that she loved and needed to support herself and her daughter, Marianne typically took Anna to the bar with her when she had to work. This wasn't necessarily the healthiest way to raise a child, but Anna spent most of her preschool years growing up inside the Tipasa bar. That's sad. It is really sad. But you can see how she felt it was necessary. Mm-hmm. People said that when she got tired, Anna would just find a bench to lay on and fall asleep. How were they not reported? I don't know. Everyone just kind of in the bar knew Anna that, oh, Anna just kind of is always here. And she was so used to it that she would just find a spot and go to bed. Despite being a full-time mother now, Marianne was not ready to give up her partying ways. She would often stay and hang out at the bar long into the early morning hours after her shift was over to party with the patrons and her fellow co-workers. While her little toddler is curled up on a bench. Yeah, she would just be like, oh, she's sleeping. Let's party. Okay. So not making the best parenting decisions here. Consequently, Marianne would often sleep most of the day while Anna was left to her own accord. This became more noticeable when Anna started school and was often absent because Marianne was sleeping in rather than getting her daughter off to school. I'm trying not to be judgmental, but I'm also looking at it from who is protecting this child. Yeah, nobody is right now. Okay. Marianne treated Anna like a little adult. And because of this, Anna became an outgoing little spitfire herself. As she got a bit older, she would often play outside and talk to her neighbors Everyone knew and loved Anna, and many felt sorry for the young girl. Anna loved animals, and if she knew you had a pet, she would sometimes skip down the cobblestone streets to come to your house and ask if she could play with your pet. How old was she when she was doing this? This is now like six, seven years old. Okay. By the time Anna was seven years old, Marianne recognized that she maybe wasn't as equipped to raise Anna on her own like she had originally hoped. Feeling desperate for help, Marianne contacted the foster care system and began making inquiries regarding placing her daughter in care. Marianne knew and trusted the couple who were considering taking in Anna, but nothing had been officially decided. No, it's not going to be that couple. It's not. Okay, good. (laughs) But now that you know more about Klaus and Marianne, let's fast forward to Monday, May 5th, 1980. Klaus was 35. Marianne was a month away from her 30th birthday, and Anna was seven years old. Marianne woke in the afternoon this day. She and Anna had had a fight the previous night, so she didn't get up to send Anna off to school. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm assuming it was a Sunday night before she was probably at the bar late, and this was a common practice for her to just sleep through the day. This poor child. Uh Uh-huh. When Marianne woke, Anna had already left for school. Marianne had a photo shoot scheduled on this afternoon, so she quickly got ready to meet a journalist from her local newspaper. Wait, I missed... I, did I tune out? Was she modeling? No, nope, but I'm going to tell you right now why. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you did not tune out. The reason for the shoot was because Marianne owned a very unique Volkswagen van. 
It was covered in colorful paintings, and a journalist at the paper wanted to do an interest piece on her van. So Marianne went to the shoot, and you can see photos of her by the van, and the vibe totally screams 70s. It was a really cool van. But she couldn't put the time or energy into making sure her kid got off to school. But she could put the time and energy into decorating her van. I don't know if she decorated it or if she acquired it somehow. I'm not sure the story of the van. But she couldn't get up to get her daughter off to school, but she did get up in time to make it to the photo shoot. So she could be featured in the newspaper. Yes. Nice. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm sure she has her reasons. Yeah. She had a rough childhood. She's not a child anymore, though. No, I was just going to say that gives us some understanding, but not excusability. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, Anna was not being taken care of in a way that she should have been. No. When Marianne got home, she noticed that Anna wasn't home from school yet, despite it being after school time. Marianne assumed that Anna was still upset with her from the previous night and must have stopped to play at a friend's house on the way home. So she didn't panic. Because remember that Anna had been raised to be very independent and wasn't really treated like a little kid by her mother. This was a seven-year-old who could usually get herself to and from school. It's also the 70s, which was a lot different. Yeah, it's hard for us to wrap our head around that right now. Yeah, for sure. When Anna still hadn't returned home from school, Marianne began to get worried. She went out and searched for her daughter but couldn't find her. When night fell, Marianne frantically went to the police station to report her seven-year-old daughter missing. By morning, Anna was still missing. None of Anna's friends had heard from her and no one had seen her. This is honestly a mother's worst nightmare. I cannot imagine what any parent of a missing person has had to go through. It has to be absolutely the worst thing. Yeah. How many scenarios would you run through your head? Oh, yeah. It would be nonstop. Yeah. If you're a neglectful parent or not, it still would be horrific. Uh huh. And so how close do they live to Klaus's house? Their neighbors. They're in the same neighborhood. A few hours later, in the afternoon of May 6th, everyone would finally know what happened to Anna. A woman walked into the police station and told police that her fiancé had just admitted to her that he had killed the missing girl, Anna. By way of information later partly given by Klaus, I'm going to walk you through what happened to Anna on the frightful day she went missing. Anna woke up and got herself ready while her mother laid sleeping. Marianne was right in her assumption that Anna was still mad at her from the night before. In an attempt to get even with her mom, Anna decided that she was going to skip school that day. Anna strolled down the familiar streets to a friend's house. She was planning on asking the friend if she wanted to play. Once she got to the house, Anna realized that her friend was at school, so Anna turned around and headed back home. That just speaks to how immature she is. I actually have that literally written here. Her not recognizing this from the start speaks to just how young Anna was. She would have then known that none of her friends could have been able to play with her that day until after school. As Anna made her way towards her home, she stopped to talk to neighbors along the way until she came across her neighbor Klaus, who just happened to be outside. Klaus and his fiancée knew Anna. They had a cat and Anna often asked if she could play with it. On this day, Klaus's fiance was not home. As Anna approached her familiar neighbor, she happily greeted him and asked if she could play with his cat. Klaus agreed and took the unsuspecting little girl into his upstairs apartment. Oh, gross. This apartment was only 200 meters away from the bar where Anna's father was currently working. Oh, it's so close to home. Mm-hmm. Klaus never admitted to exactly what happened inside the apartment but we do know that he held her in his apartment for hours. 
I will tell you what he uses as his defense when we get to the trial, and it honestly will make you sick. Being a convicted pedophile who sexually assaulted girls Anna's age, it is strongly assumed that once inside, Klaus raped young Anna. You can see why there's such an uproar when somebody that's registered on the sex offenders registry moves into a neighborhood. Like he's supposed to be a reformed guy and he moved in and I know this is the 70s, so they probably didn't have that same registry then, but you would be assuming that he's turned his life around, right? Yeah, I'm sure nobody had any idea who he was. And even the authorities were not following up with him. They had no idea that he had reversed his chemical castration. Once Klaus was finished with Anna, he grabbed a nearby pair of his fiance's pantyhose and walked up behind Anna while she was sitting on a chair and began strangling her with them. Anna desperately tried to fight for her life, even to the point of knocking over the chair that she was sitting on. However, Anna, being just a young child, had no chance against a full-grown man. Klaus strangled her to death. Why did he kill her? He had sexually assaulted children before. Had he ever hurt them before? He had been charged with that attempted murder before, but he had never actually murdered anyone before. And that's where I talk about his defense when he's going to say why he had to kill her, which we'll get to when we talk about the trial. Okay. It's just so sad. It seems so unnecessary. She, What real threat was she to him? Yeah, none. Yeah. But he had her in there for hours. I'm sure he repeatedly sexually assaulted her. And then when he was done, he was just done. He obviously had no regard for her as a human being. Oh, no, not at all. Surprisingly, when Klaus's fiance got home, Klaus confessed to her about having just killed the neighbor girl. Horrified, the fiance immediately fled the apartment and went straight to the police. Good for her. Yeah. That is what I wrote. Good for her. Because some people don't. They don't Mm. turn in their loved ones. She didn't even hesitate. And honestly, if she didn't, there is the possibility that no one would have even found out what happened to Anna. Yeah, she is a hero for that. Yeah. Klaus said that after his fiance left, he couldn't stand to look at Anna's body anymore. So he left his fiance a note, carefully put Anna's body in a cardboard box, and left the apartment on his bicycle, balancing the box while he rode. No. And how disturbing is it she's such a small child that he can put her in a box that can be balanced on a bicycle? Exactly. Klaus biked to a nearby canal and buried Anna in a shallow grave on the shore. When his fiancé returned to the apartment with the police, Klaus was not there. However, his note told the fiancé that he would be at a specific bar later that night and asked her to please meet him there so they could discuss what happened. Police went to the bar and waited for Klaus. When he arrived, expecting to see his fiance, police instantly arrested the sick and disgusting dirtbag and took him to the station for questioning. I can't get over the fact that he actually thought his fiance was going to come meet him at the bar. Yeah, you can't explain that away, Klaus. It just shows how demented his thinking was, like that this is okay. You think your fiance is going to want to marry you and stay together? Mind you, some do, I guess. <laughs> some of that just, as I said that, I'm thinking some of the cases we've covered, some of them do. Mm-hmm. While in custody... Klaus openly admitted to killing Anna. Police went to the spot where Klaus said he left Anna and retrieved her body. Next, police had to break the news to Marianne. Police went to Marianne the same night that Klaus was apprehended to inform her that her sweet daughter had been murdered and presumably sexually assaulted. It was said that Marianne's reaction was not what the officers expected. Marianne didn't want to really talk to the officers, and when asked to come and identify her daughter's body, she declined. I think she was likely in shock. Yeah. How would you bring yourself to ID your child's body? I don't know. 
There's been so many that can't do that and have to ask somebody else to do it. I would have to do it. That's my personality. I would not want to do that, but I know I would have to do that. I think I would be the same way. Yeah. But I'm only assuming how I would feel. Hopefully we never have to be put in that situation because we can't judge how people react to grief and trauma. It's so true. You don't know until you're in that situation what you would do. So oftentimes it changes from what you thought you would do. Right. And so they noted that it was an unusual reaction, but I honestly do think she was in shock. Marianne admittedly felt so much guilt. She felt terrible that their last interaction was a fight and that she wasn't there for her daughter that day. Feelings of regret also flooded in regarding Marianne investigating having Anna possibly live with someone else. These feelings were unbearable for her. Marianne was unarguably a neglectful parent, but she still loved her daughter ferociously. Well, I think her looking for a foster care situation was showing her love for her. She recognized that she wasn't the best person to care for her. Yeah, and that her daughter deserved to be cared for in a better way. Mm -hmm. I agree. Even placing her other two children up for adoption shows that love for them. Mm -hmm. A funeral was held for Anna, and Marianne made sure that it was not an uptight, overly religious affair. Instead of soft chapel music playing during the service... Marianne chose to have Pink Floyd playing full blast. About the funeral, Marianne said that it was Anna's day. She said about Anna, quote, She must be happy. We want to dress in bright, cheerful colors, and it must be a funeral she would have enjoyed. The funeral went until sunrise. It sounds like it was a celebration of her life. It really was. It took almost a year for Klaus's trial to begin. Proceedings began near the beginning of March 1981. Leading up to the trial, Marianne understandably had a very difficult time. She would sometimes lock herself in her apartment all alone for periods of time, and other times would be seen having a complete meltdown. I don't know how you would ever deal with that. Mm -mm, I can't either. When court began, Marianne made sure to sit in the very front row so she could look her daughter's killer in the eye. At one point, she shouted, calling him a pig. I just can't even imagine the rage you would feel. I couldn't imagine sitting there and even just watching them without wanting to throttle them. Yeah, exactly. I believe it was the very first day of court when Klaus testified on his behalf. He admitted to killing Anna. He described in detail her death. About strangling her, he said, quote, I heard something come out of her nose. I was fixated. Then I could not stand the sight of her body any longer. I thought, what a vile dirtbag. Yeah. He wanted her so much that he kidnapped her, raped her, and then killed her. And then he was just done and over it. Yeah. Yeah, that is disturbing. It's disgusting. What gets worse is that Klaus decided to blame Anna for her own death. What? Remember, I told you we would circle back to his defense. Klaus claimed that he did not touch Anna in a sexual way, which is a lie. He said that instead, he was being blackmailed by the seven-year-old. What? This lowlife piece of steaming poo said that Anna had tried to seduce him. A seven-year-old. Yeah. What the actual heck? He continued to lie, saying that after he rejected Anna, she got angry and told him that if he didn't give her money, she was going to tell her mother that he touched her. Klaus said he was so afraid of being sent back to jail that he decided his only option was to kill the girl. What? And I don't know about you, but I have a fire in my belly just reading about this. I can't fathom how those present in the courtroom must have felt hearing this dirtbag say that a young child tried to seduce and extort him 
and how he was basically justified in taking her life to save himself. I feel like it's pretty safe to say that Anna likely didn't even know what blackmail was or what it meant to seduce someone. That is one of the bizarrest defenses that I've ever heard. Yeah. And to make matters worse, Klaus's defense team were on board with trying to tarnish the victim's character, even though she was a defenseless, innocent child. This is a seven-year-old we're talking about. A happy-go-lucky, friendly little girl. How did he get his defense attorney to sign up for that? I don't know, honestly, how they slept at night. He's admitted to killing her. Like, how can they believe this? He's a convicted pedophile, sex offender. And there was evidence to say that he had sexually assaulted her. I could not find that evidence. Everything said it was assumed, but that might just have been lost in translation. He was being charged with her rape, so there had to have been something. Right. But I couldn't find a document that said that. The rape kit or anything like that. Yeah. I am just floored that, okay, it's one thing for him to say this is my defense and I'm going to blame Anna, but that he got some lawyer on board to say these things as well. Yeah. And to think that this was going to be a viable defense. They thought a jury would buy this. It blows my mind that they were on board with this. Because on that first day of court, the defense basically just tried to tarnish who Anna was. Their victim blaming a seven-year-old little girl. They basically called her a street rat. Even if she was a street rat, she didn't deserve this. Exactly. They also pointed out that Marianne was an unfit mother who just slept while her daughter did whatever she wanted. And like you said, even if some of these things they said were true, who the heck cares? It does not justify a grown man taking a spur-of-the-moment opportunity to kidnap, torture, and murder a child. Knowing that Klaus just jumped on a random opportunity tells me just how horrifically evil of a person he really was. He didn't plan this. This was a crime of opportunity. Wow. It makes me wonder how many times he watched her playing on the street or playing with his cat and was having those thoughts. Like, it's a big stretch to go from oh, I'm going to invite you in and you're going to play with our cat to now I'm going to rape you and murder you. Oh, I think he had those thoughts all along, but his fiance was usually with him. So all of a sudden it was like probably this excitement in him. My fiance's not here. She's all alone. Like she should have been at school. He just took the chance. No one will even know because they'll think she's at school. Hmm. He is just a ugly human being. Day two of the trial wasn't any easier for Marianne and Christian to sit through. On this day, the urologist who reversed Klaus's chemical castration was questioned. He reiterated what we already know about the experience, that he believed Klaus when he told him that he was only charged with being an exhibitionist, and that he did not follow up to find out for himself why Klaus had been castrated in the first place. I can't imagine there's actually a protocol to follow up. It would just be if you were thinking about it. Right. But as a doctor, I would think you have some due diligence to do there. If someone's coming to reverse that and you know it's given to sex offenders, don't give it then if you don't know for sure. Right. Marianne and Christian later tried to sue this doctor for negligence, but lost due to not being able to find an expert witness who would testify that what the doctor did was wrong. I did, however, read that this case did cause Germany to evaluate how well their policy of using chemical castration in exchange for lessened sentences was working. Like we said. Yeah, there probably needed to be some documentation and process put in. Yeah, some follow-up. Yeah. It sounds like until that time, there was no process to follow up. No. Klaus's defense team also tried using the fact that his hormones were out of balance from receiving hormone therapy at the time of the murder to lessen their client's guilt. 
But like I mentioned earlier, his testosterone levels were back to his original levels. But they're like, oh, he was undergoing this hormone treatment. So so that's going to make him more aggressive? Is that what they were claiming? Yeah, he's going to be, you know, out of sorts because of that. Well, I'm sorry. Imbalanced hormones don't just make you be a dirtbag. Or give you permission to be a dirtbag. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine how many menopausal women could kill everybody? <laughs> even just hormonal women in general, not even menopausal. <laughs> I just can't even imagine, though, for Marianne, how hard it would be to be sitting through hearing all of these things. All of these excuses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also on this day, the court described how Anna's body was found. Anna had been hogtied. Oh. Hands to ankles before being placed in the box. This information shocked and horrified everyone in the room. Why was that necessary? It shouldn't have been. On the third day of trial, Marianne arrived early. Not many people had yet entered room 157 of Lubeck District Court, where the trial was taking place. When Marianne entered the courtroom, she expressed to her friend that she felt uncomfortable being in a room that felt so empty with her daughter's killer being there. It felt too close for comfort. The friend suggested that they wait outside the courtroom until it filled up a bit more. The women started to walk out of the courtroom when all of a sudden Marianne stopped and turned around. She calmly walked towards Klaus. He had been let in a side door near the front of the courtroom and had his back towards the entrance. Marianne put her hand in her long coat pocket and pulled out a twenty-two caliber Beretta 70 semi-automatic pistol. She's not. With no expression on her face, Marianne slowly... See, this is where I'm going to cry. She slowly raised her arm and released eight bullets, six of which entered Klaus's back. I watched a video of Marianne doing this. You cannot see Klaus, but you can clearly see Marianne head on. I have yet to watch this video without crying. You can tell no one expected this to happen. Marianne just stands there for a second. You can see the life leave her face as the bullets fly. Two officers run up to either side of her and gently grab her arms. One officer just lowers her arm and at first doesn't even remove the gun from her hand. They treat her with such kindness. Instead of forcibly tackling her to the ground, they stand there beside her for a moment and let her watch the man that took her baby's life fall to the ground. They let her watch him bleed. Shortly after the shooting, Marianne was heard saying, I wanted to kill him. He killed my daughter. I wanted to shoot him in the face. Unfortunately, I hit him in the back. I hope he's dead. Wow. So did they purposely let her stand there and not tackle her to the ground? They did. It was such an act of mercy, and I think that's partly why this touches me so much. They didn't tackle her. They just both run up grab either side of her. And I think they're in shock too. They all just stand there staring at Klaus. But you can't encourage that kind of vigilante justice either. Oh, they didn't encourage. They ran to stop her. They just didn't tackle her to the ground. Right. It was already done by the time they got up to her. She wasn't still shooting. Mm -hmm. The video must be so moving. We're going to pause and let Melissa watch the video. Wow. It doesn't even look real. Like she's so calm. Yeah. If that guy in the background hadn't reacted the way he did, everything else looks to be almost phony because it's so calm. Yeah, she has no expression. And like Melissa says, there's a man sitting on a bench behind where she's standing. And it just so happens that the cameras are facing her head on so you can see her expressions. When she starts firing, he ducks. Another guy jumps out of the seat like they were not expecting it. But even the police officer's reaction, like you would think that they would be tackling her to the ground and they don't. No. But we have to remember, too, these officers have been listening to this defense and what this guy has been saying, too. Hard to know what they were feeling in that moment, either. And they're all just happy the dirtbag's dead? I think so. 
Christian, Anna's father, was right there when it happened, and he exclaimed, she did it. She actually did it. (gasps) Did she tell him before that she was going to? Well, there's no proof of that, but this statement would later be used in the argument that Marianne must have pre-planned her actions. But we're going to get into all of that. Klaus died on the cold courtroom floor only a few minutes later, before a doctor could even arrive on scene. Marianne left the court with the officers and was arrested without resistance. Yeah, she just totally stood there. Mm -hmm. This all occurred around 10 o'clock a.m. on March 6, 1981, a cold and gloomy day in more ways than one. As you can imagine, this event took Germany by storm. It quickly became one of the most famous vigilante cases that anyone had ever heard of. Pictures of Marianne were published everywhere, and the media referred to her as the revenge mother. She had become a celebrity of sorts. It is so fascinating to me that people's emotions are so mixed over these revenge killings or these murders that happened to these dirtbags. Because on one hand, you feel like, yes, he deserved to die for what he did to Anna. He needed to die. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine sitting there and I would want to extract as a mother that vengeance. But then knowing that that's not my place. Yeah, murder is still murder. Murder is murder and vigilantism isn't a good thing, is it? It's a slippery slope, right? Because if you let one go, then you have to let them all go? Like, where does it end then? Right? Right. But would Marianne have ever killed anybody had this not happened? No, I don't believe she would have. So to no surprise, people had extremely differing opinions regarding what should happen to Marianne. Many people expressed that they would have done the same thing as Marianne, or even worse if put in her shoes. They openly said that shooting him was not suffering enough that Klaus deserved no mercy, and that they stood by Marianne. Those who stood behind her even donated money to try and help her. And a little side note about money, Marianne also later sold her life story to a news magazine called Stern to cover all legal fees that she had incurred, and then some. And on the flip side, others judged her for her struggles as a mother and felt like Marianne was almost to blame for the predicament her daughter was in and called her a cold-blooded murderer. And I'm sure many more fell somewhere in between these two viewpoints. There would have been so much emotion around this. Oh, yeah. And so many opinions. Absolutely. And strong opinions. Regardless of the public's opinion, Marianne would be put on trial for the murder of Klaus Grabowski. The first order of the court was to determine what type of murder was Marianne responsible for. Should she be charged with first degree murder or manslaughter? It looked like first degree to me. Marianne said that she didn't plan on killing Klaus. She claimed she had the gun for her own protection and had brought it even with her to court all three days of the trial. Which just shocks me that you can take a gun into the courtroom. Yeah, this was back in the day when you weren't searched for weapons upon entering a courthouse. You totally could have a pistol in your pocket and nobody would know. But I'm sure you weren't supposed to. Or at least you weren't checked for it. Right. Where now your bags are checked, metal detectors, all of that. Because of cases like this. Exactly. The gun did raise some debate during her trial. Marianne had bought the gun from a guy at the bar, and people were suspicious of her accurate aim. This made them think that she had practiced using the gun prior to using it in court that day. And when did she buy this gun? Before or after Anna's death? I believe it was after Anna's death, but she said it was for her own protection because it did shake her up. So she was feeling vulnerable. Okay, I can see that. Mm -hmm. People who frequented the bar claimed that Marianne practiced her shot in the bar's cellar. Again, this doesn't mean she was practicing to shoot Klaus. 
Marianne denied this accusation. She said she was close enough to Klaus that it was hard to miss him. She was approximately three and a half meters or 11 feet away from him. That's some distance. You can miss at that distance. Yeah. From watching the video, it is clear that she was at least familiar with how the gun worked. Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem like she hesitated at all. She walked in and it looked like with a purpose. I think it does too, to be honest. But I don't know because she was starting to walk out the room. And if it just all of a sudden hit her and she turned around and she is going to give a little bit of that explanation because Marianne did make that split decision to turn around that day. And she did open fire on her daughter's dirtbag murderer. And this will give some explanation to why she broke down. Before court proceedings ended the previous day, Marianne overheard a conversation between the presiding judge and the defense attorney stating that Klaus was going to get the chance to testify again the next day. Marianne had been dreading all night the thought of Klaus getting the opportunity to continue to spew lies about her defenseless daughter and fabricate more reasons why he had no other choice than to kill Anna. As Marianne began to walk out of the courtroom that day to wait in the hallway for more people to arrive, she said she was overcome with thoughts about what Klaus was going to say. She could not sit there and let this murderer degrade her daughter more than he already had. Marianne said, quote, I heard he wanted to make a statement. I thought, now comes the next lie about this victim who was my child. Marianne herself had been a victim of abuse, including rape, and was especially irate about her daughter being blamed for what had happened to her. She basically claimed that she snapped in the moment. Well, that guy had tried to blame her for being a tart, right? Mm -hmm. So she would totally recognize those emotions. I'm having trouble with her decision. I think that there were so many other decisions. She could have just not went there that day. But I don't know how you don't show up for your daughter's murder trial. To me, that's not an option not showing up that day. Yeah. Not that I'm trying to justify her killing him. Maybe she doesn't take the gun then. Right. Hands the gun off to her friend. If I'm feeling murderous, I'm not going to put a murder weapon in my pocket. Yeah. Take my jacket that has this gun in it because I'm feeling tempted. Yeah. But she just said it was a split decision. It just overcame her this flood of emotion. And she just made that decision and then went for it. Ironically, Marianne had misheard the conversation between the judge and the attorney, and Klaus was not even scheduled to give a statement that day. So did she actually even overhear it? No, I believe she thought that because she was worried about it all night. That's what her claim is Mm -hmm. so that she can prove that she didn't premeditate it. I didn't think that it was a lie, but maybe. Okay. According to the law in West Germany at the time, Marianne had killed a defenseless person and was therefore charged with the equivalent to first degree murder. They believed it was premeditated. When news of her charges were made public, the nation clapped back in an uproar, feeling and expressing that her charge was way too harsh. Because of this, the prosecution actually lowered her charge to intentional manslaughter. This must have been a tough situation for authorities to be in. They couldn't justify vigilante killing because of the precedence it would set for future cases, but they also felt they needed to show some form of compassion for a grieving mother. It reminds me of the Jane Hirschman case. And the first time she went to trial, they acquitted her. And they're like, oh, no, actually, she needs to serve some kind of sentence because she did kill somebody in cold blood, a right. defenseless person. Yeah, it's true. And that was another one that was really hard to really form a opinion on because you can see both sides of the situation. Mm-hmm. And it's not always black and white. no. Marianne reluctantly was interviewed by psychologists who determined that she had suffered, quote, irreparable mental and spiritual damage. 
Marianne was officially charged in November of 1982. Her 28-day trial ended in March of 1983. This time, the courtroom was jammed-packed with people. So much so that her trial had to be moved to a different state building that seated 200. Most of her supporters during the trial were mothers and other women in general. Marianne seemed to undergo a transition after killing Klaus. She appeared bold and unafraid. She never shied away from a photo and displayed zero remorse for her actions. She expressed that she regretted that it had to happen, but didn't regret doing it. Marianne expressed that Klaus made matters worse by only blaming Anna and never taking responsibility for what he did. She said, quote, I can't imagine that I would have shot this person if he had turned around and said that he was sorry about what he had done. During her trial, Marianne said that she saw visions of her daughter in the courtroom, and when she was asked for a handwriting sample, she wrote the words, I love you, Anna, followed by seven drawn hearts, one for each year of Anna's short life. In the end, Marianne was convicted of manslaughter and the unlawful possession of a firearm in 1983. She was sentenced to six years in prison. Marianne only ended up serving half of her sentence and was released on parole after serving only three years. Ironically, since Klaus had died before he was found guilty, he was never formally convicted of Anna's death. Oh, and that doesn't enter onto his record then? No, because he died during court proceedings. That's a slap in the face. Uh Uh-huh. But I think Marianne felt like justice had been served. Just like the initial news of her actions, Marianne's conviction and sentence also had strongly mixed feelings from the public and court staff. Some felt that the murder was 100% premeditated, that Marianne was not in any imminent danger, and that Klaus proved to be zero threat to her with his back towards her. Plus, she brought that weapon to court with her. Others, including the judge, felt Marianne was not a threat to the general public and that her actions were caused by the trauma of her daughter's death and the court proceedings. Her actions were seen as a triggered spontaneous break. This case had stirred so much public interest that a survey was conducted to see how people felt about her sentencing. The Ellensbach Institute found that 28% of Germans felt her sentence was appropriate, 27% felt it was too harsh, 25% felt it was too light, and the remaining 20% were undecided. That is all over the board. It is. It's pretty even. And I'm really curious where our listeners will fall on this one. Where do you think? Where do I fall on that? I think I would feel more like leaning towards the appropriate. I wouldn't have wanted to see Marianne in jail for the rest of her life for that. I do think she had to go to jail. Just so it didn't set a precedence. Right. I don't feel like it was too harsh. If anything, it was maybe on the light side. I think I fall with the first category where they... Where it was appropriate? Yeah, I think it was appropriate. Yeah. That was my first reaction too. like, she had to go to jail. She had to Mm -hmm. because you can't just let people walk into a courtroom and murder whoever they want. But like I said, I don't think she should have like died in jail. No, because she it doesn't seem like she would be a threat to any other person. No, she didn't ask for this to happen. She didn't bring this upon herself, but she still did make that choice to kill Klaus. Right. Split decision or not, she made that choice and followed through. But is three years going to be deterrent enough to stop the next person from doing it? Maybe they'd consider that, you know, a debt well paid. Yeah, I don't know. And honestly, as a grieving parent or even just someone grieving about anybody that you care for, some people would feel like I would spend the whole rest of my life in jail, that it would be worth it to get rid of this dirtbag. So that's why I mean, like, maybe three years wasn't enough because that's not really a deterrent. No. When you're grieving. But really, it's probably irrelevant to if someone is actually going to do that or not. True. Because even people who commit murder, knowing that they could get the death penalty, still commit murder. Mm -hmm. 
Before we end, I'm going to give you a super quick update on Marianne's life after she was released. The judge was right. She never once was a threat to society after being released from prison. Many publications were produced about this case, including Marianne herself participating in televised interviews. There is too many pop culture items to even mention, but they include plays, books, movies, and documentaries. Just be aware that most of these are in German. In the 1980s, Marianne married a man and moved to the western part of Africa with him for his work as a German language teacher. Ten years later, they divorced and Marianne moved to Palermo, Sicily. While in Sicily, Marianne worked as a caregiver at a local hospice. She tenderly took care of those who were reaching the end of their lives. Sadly, Marianne was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She hired a reporter to film her last days for her as a video diary until she passed away inside a Lubeck hospital on September 17, 1996. She was only 46 years old at the time of her death. Marianne was buried next to her daughter Anna at the Bergter Cemetery in Lubeck, Germany. Their shared gravestone displays a picture of the two of them together. And that is the story of a sexual predator pedophile who took the first opportunity that he could to violate and murder an innocent child, the cowardly dirtbag who blamed his victim, Klaus Grabowski. And that is also the story of a mother pushed to the edge who took justice into her own hands, the revenge mother who took an eye for an eye, Marianne Bachmeyer. That was a crazy case. And I can see why you were so emotional about it. Yeah, this case had me feeling a certain way. I think it really tugged on my mama heart. For Anna, for Marianne, for just the whole situation. And listeners, you really do have to go check out that video. The way the police react to her as she's shooting is dumbfounding. It is. And let us know how you feel. Do you feel like justice was served? Did Marianne get what she had coming to her? Was it too harsh? Was it not enough? There's so much to unpack. Just let us know what you think. And while you're at it, if you haven't rated or reviewed us, we would really enjoy that. We really would. And we'll be back with you next week when Melissa has another case. But until then, see ya. Bye. That's right. I got it now. <laughs> the things we got to do. <laughs> testing, testing. We are all riled up already and have been eating chocolate. I'm <laughs> not sure if that's a good thing or not. It's been a morning. That's all that we'll say. <laughs> it's so nice to have a friend that when you fall apart, they're okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> they smile and feed you chocolate. Right. <laughs> and offer to throat punch the people who are annoying you. <laughs> I got your back. <laughs> That's okay, Melissa. Here, have some chocolate <laughs> before you explode. I stand in the corner and throw chocolate at her <laughs> until she comes down. <laughs> okay, ready? Yep. My cheeks already hurt from laughing. <laughs> Mine too. Okay. We're going to test again. And we're going to do the third time. <laughs> Crying hurts my head, Christy. <laughs> I much prefer to laugh. It's true. You hit your keyboard. Sorry. Let me just finish this. Okay. You thought you could be sneaky and type all that and not show up. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. And unfortunately, this doctor took Klaus's word for it and admit and 
An unfortunate. Okay, I got through that part. I could only not see for a second. I can't do this case without crying. I don't know. Okay. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.